0: That's Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Charlotte Green is people! No.
1: I am the father.
0: Oh. What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it
2: up! Damn you all to
1: hell! Hello, and welcome to another Slate Spoiler Special. I'm Sam Adams, the senior editor at Slate, and I am joined today via Skype by Matthew Dessim, Slate's nights and weekends browbeat editor. Matthew, hello. Hello. Uh, This week we are spoiling Dr. Sleep, which is a sequel to The Shining, Uh, both the Stephen King novel and the Stanley Kubrick movie, which are not entirely congruent. That is something we will be uh, talking about quite a lot. Um, It picks up for the most part in the present day, um, about 40 years after the events of the original movie, and we're still following uh, Danny Torrance, the kid from that movie now known as Dan, who is an alcoholic, kind of still struggling with his demons, literal and metaphoric. Uh, But before we get into the movie, there's another slate show that we want to tell you about. It's called The Authority, Exploring the World of His Dark Materials. Join Slate's very own Laura Miller and Dan Coyce as they deep dive inside the world of HBO's adaptation of Philip Pullman's *His Dark Materials* series. Subscribe to the Authority now wherever you get your podcasts. Let's just uh, start things off in the traditional way and just talk about whether or not we would uh, recommend this movie or not, uh, Mr. Desham.
2: What say you? I would say that if you're an enormous fan of *The Shining*, it's fun, but it comes from these two sources that don't really match. Um, I don't know. It's like there's 2 hours of a pretty good vampire movie and then 30 minutes of The Shining so If that's your thing, go for
1: it. I mean, whose thing is that not? Really? Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I think if you're a huge fan of the original Shining, um, meaning meaning the Kubrick movie in this case, this will probably interest you. You may also hate it for that reason. So it's a weird um, kind of chimera in that respect as well. I know people who are real kind of evangelical Stanley Kubrick fans who are just like horribly offended at the existence of this movie, and particularly the fact that it restages um, some of the kind of iconic scenes from the original. I thought that part was kind of interesting. I I think the adapter director, writer director of this, Mike Flanagan, is kind of an interesting figure. He kind of came out of the more straight horror world through movies like um, Oculus and and Sinister 2 and has gotten some more kind of mainstream exposure recently, mostly on Netflix. He did an adaptation of Stephen King's Gerald's Game uh, and then did The Haunting of Hill House, which is kind of an adaptation of Shirley Jackson as a series uh, (laughs) last year. Um, And so now he's doing this. I think he's like an interesting figure. I think there are good aspects to this. I also think the movie like doesn't work. Um, I think it is basically not very scary. Um, which is a bit of a problem in this movie. It may have something to do with Warner Brothers releasing a horror movie in the first week of November, which is kind of an insane time to release it, and the kind of lousy box office returns sort of indicate that. Um, It is not like a movie I regret having seen, but it is not one that I can't exactly recommend either. So hopefully, um, even if you don't intend to see it, you will stick with us through this uh, exploration of it, and we'll tell you everything that happened in it, as you might expect from a spoiler special. So we start off in 1980 and we are shortly going to pick up with Danny Torrance and his mother, Wendy. But before that, we are introduced to the most significant character in this uh, sequel to The Shining, who is a, a woman, so to speak, named Rose the Hat, by um, Rebecca Ferguson. Um, as kind of an Irish woman. And so I, I very hard for me to not just call her Rose the Hat like every time, but I will <laughs> I will do my best not to, although I just was literally kind of walking around my house the day afterward, just going Rose the Hat like over and over again. <laughs> but um, I, I apologize for any of our Irish listeners um, for my mangling of your lovely dialect. Um, <laughs> So anyway, we find um, Rose the Hat kind of by a a lake in Florida somewhere, which is where Danny and his mother have relocated after the events of The Shining, the movie, um, getting as far away from that kind of frigid locale as possible. Um, Rose the Hat is kind of lingering by this lake. She seems like a very kind of nice, kind, you know, woman, um, asks this little girl to come over and, and talk to her. Um, And then while she is doing that, these figures kind of appear out of the woods and close in on the little girl. And then we cut away Um, because we are spoiling this. We will tell you that those people we will eventually find out are a group of kind of quasi immortal beings. I don't know exactly what to call them. Monsters sort of vampires um, called the True Knot um, who will track down people who have the first movie calls The Shining, the kind of psychic abilities that Danny has. And um will basically, and they particularly prefer children and like to uh, murder them in as horrible fashion as possible and then kind of suck this steam, what they call, out of them and they will feed off that. So we're going to be seeing a lot more of them um, from this point on. And then we catch up briefly with uh, Danny and his mother. And this is where you get a real sense of what this movie is doing. You know, this is a few months after The Shining ends. These roles have been recast. Uh, you have Roger Dale Floyd playing the young Danny and an actress named Alex Esso playing uh, Wendy Torrance, the role made famous by Shelley Duvall. They get the physicality of them just right. And it's a, it was a little kind of disarming for me because I didn't I didn't know the film was going to do that in the first place. Um, and Alex Esso, I found really um, kind of nailed. I mean, Shelley Duvall's performance in that movie, in the original movie, is very kind of like High key and, and theatrical, and a lot of people find it extremely annoying. Um, our, our friend um, Bill Gutierrez just wrote a great defense of it for um, Vulture, but she is kind of Alex Esser was kind of getting the essence of that Shelley Duvall performance, which is not an easy thing to get uh, without, um, but not doing a, a caricature of it is in kind of a really interesting space. What did you What did you think of that moment?
2: I think the first time that I thought, well, this is sort of The Shining, but not the very first shot is of the overlooks uh, carpet. And then there's a sort of recreation of that steady cam shot down the hallways, right? Like that's the title shot,
1: right? The, the of, big wheel uh, where the shot. camera follows yeah.
2: little Danny on the, yeah, on the big wheel around the hallways. And then he looks up at room. Is it two, three, seven in this? Like yes. it is in the movie. Yeah. Uh, it, it's like those shots. And they're almost like in the film, but not quite like the camera moves differently. And, uh, and the hair is like, not quite right. I, I knew the, what they were doing with that. Um, so when Wendy shu- sh- showed up, I already was like, okay, they're going to use you know, actors actors doing it there.
1: What are your feelings about the original Shining? I mean, you're a person who kind of holds it sacrosanct. and
2: or- I, I, I love it. I, I also lo- like the book. Um, I, I mean, the thing about it is, like when I said if you're a fan of The Shining, you'll like this, I guess the question is which Shining you're a fan of, uh, because um, I could see also why Stephen King would not have loved Kubrick's movie, but this movie terrifying. I mean, I would say that was the one thing that I thought was, as you said before, was different. This isn't a very frightening movie, and uh, uh, The Shining really was. Yeah, this movie has a very
1: kind of interesting and somewhat impossible task, um, which it is based on Dr. Sleep, which is a novel by Stephen King, which is the sequel to Stephen King's novel, The Shining. Um, it is also kind of a Warner Brothers product and uh, an extension of one of their more treasured pieces of intellectual property, which is Stanley Kubrick's movie, The Shining. Um, Stephen King um, famously hates um, Stanley Kubrick's movie of The Shining to the extent that he kind of engineered to have a pretty terrible and entirely forgotten uh, miniseries remake of it done in the late 1990s. And King's novel, which ends with... um, there's a whole, instead of the, the hedge maze thing, there is a whole thing where the Overlook's um, topiary comes to life, and then um, Jack Torrance ends up in the, the boiler room of the Overlook, which then kind of explodes and, and is destroyed and destroys him along with it. So Mike Flanagan has to kind of create a sequel that works, create a sequel that works as a sequel to both of those things, which are fundamentally incompatible and um, under the guidance of an author who hates the original movie version of his book. Um, so it's a servant of at least two masters and possibly more.
2: Yeah, that was, I mean, I thought that it was much more interesting as a work of like, how would you do this impossible adaptation than it is as just like a, a vampire movie or a, or a horror film. Using actors sort of imitating those performances or, or doing riffs on those performances was an interesting way to do it. I mean, it's, of course, it's how you would have done it at any point in the past until, you know, 10 years ago or whatever. Uh, I mean, we're now in the age of Reuse the footage or build a CGI, you know, fake version of Jack Nicholson at the time of The Shining. Um, And I don't know if there were any other concerns rights-wise or actor participation-wise that prevented them from doing that. But uh, I thought it was interesting to see them do it just completely analog like that.
1: Right. You know, sort of significantly later in the film, we will, um, of course, eventually... Return to, you know, the Overlook recreation of it and return to the character of Jack Torrance, um, who's going to be played in this movie eventually by by Henry Thomas and not by a digitally de-aged uh, Jack Nicholson. Um, but we are introduced soon after this to uh, another one of The Shining's characters who shows up in this movie. Um, and that is the the character of Dick Halloran, um, played, of course, by Scatman Crothers um, and then killed by Jack Nicholson in the original And he reappears here in the form of Carl Lumbly as a kind of uh, guide to the afterlife or, you know, still kind of a a tutor for Danny in the ways of managing his shining. Uh, Dick Dick informs Doc, as he still calls him, that, you know, the overlook is more or less um, contained. But because of his shining, Danny is always going to be a target for the kinds of, of ghosts who visited him there. Um, and in fact, we see one of them, the kind of naked old woman in the bathtub, reappear in Danny's bathtub, and um, Dick teaches him how to kind of create these boxes in his mind which appear um, in the middle of the, the Overlook's hedge maze from the movie, and the, those are a way of kind of trapping those uh, tr- those ghosts in there. So he uses his power, he's learned to use his power to kind of keep them at bay and, and contain them. Uh, but we get the sense also that he's going to be perpetually haunted by them. We see that comes true shortly after because then the movie jumps forward um, briefly into 2011 and then into the present day into 2019, um, where Dan Torrance, as he's now called, is first just a full-on alcoholic, then eventually a recovering alcoholic. He's been using uh, drink to kind of suppress his shining to you know not have to see these horrible things. Um, he bottoms out in 2011 and decamps for uh, small town New Hampshire which is where he uh, resettles and that's where the bulk of the story picks up and we should mention at this point that the dan torrance um as he will be known for this movie is played by uh ewan mcgregor in this um who is evidently with this and the returning to obi-wan kenobi in this (laughs) sort of he's in his retirement (laughs) the retirement nest egg phase
2: of, of his career yeah accumulating houses
1: yeah. Yes. I um, mean so what did what do you think of the kind of grown up version of of Dan Torrance? And, and you've have you read you've read Doctor Sleep too, is that right?
2: Yeah. I reread recently both of these books. And it's it's interesting because again, it's uh in the novel The Shining, what Stephen King is interested in is Jack Torrance's struggle with alcoholism. And so writing a sequel to The Shining, what he's interested in is, you know, Danny Torrance's struggle with the trauma of the first novel and alcoholism. I mean, it's uh I think that works given the priors. I mean, given that that's that's what what King is, is interested in and is trying to write about. If you'd never read either book and you were making a sequel to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, um, you might land on abuse, but I don't think you would land on drinking because it's not Kubrick was not as interested in that. Right. As King was right, but that is a major. So I, think, so I think it works, yeah. But I think it only works if you accept the fact that it's this is Stephen King writing about what Stephen King cares about from that story, not necessarily what you care about from the movie.
1: Um, and this ties in. With a lot of the stuff that Mike Flanagan is interested in as in a director too, this is a huge um, aspect of the Haunting of Hill House, which he turned into a, a right. I guess I would say faithless um, Shirley Jackson adaptation <laughs> for for Netflix. It has its it has its charms, but it is not uh, Shirley Jackson's Hill House by any stretch of the imagination. That series works in a kind of dual time frame. You have the kind of the action of the book, which is where these um, kids in this house are haunted by these ghosts who have been there, and then you know, the, most of the series, kind of increasingly more of it, is concerned with what happens to these kids as adults. And one of them um, grows up and becomes a sort of author and writes a book called The Haunting of, of Hill House um, and becomes a success. Um, several of the others become, you know, addicts or of, of one kind or another. Um, one of them ends up killing herself, which is the kind of the event that kind of precipitates the whole series. Um And the kind of running theme in that adaptation is, you know, horror movies are often often focused on children. They're about kind of being afraid of the dark, about these things that scare you. And then at the end, um, the kids kind of escape and everything seems to be fine. But, you know, the Hill House and Dr. Sleep are really about like, okay, like you're out of immediate danger, but like you're fucked up for life if that happens to you as a kid. Like your dad doesn't try to kill you with an ax when you're five and then everything's fine. Uh, So picking up the story after 30, 40 years is kind of a way to really look at the lasting trauma of these kinds of things, which is an interesting, you know, the return of the repressed is such kind of a big element in in horror. And it really, really comes to the fore in a story like this.
2: And King, of course, like is, uh, I mean, if you look at, if you look at Huntington Hill House as a Shirley Jackson adaptation, it's not, uh, you're not gonna be happy, but if you look at it as an audition for a Stephen King movie, uh with all that generational trauma and in fact a character who becomes a Stephen King like author, um, it's a masterpiece. <laughs> uh but yeah, exactly.
1: That's also that's also the theme of um it, which is the other sort of you know, reason Yeah, I was just to gonna either.
2: say I was just gonna say it is uh the, the the other big thing where King messes around with this. So <laughs>
1: All right. Um, so we yeah. um, so we pick up with with Dan in, in 2011 and in 2019, and he's kind of trying to settle down in this New Hampshire town, make a kind of steady life for himself. He has some menial jobs. He runs like a kind of toy locomotive for kids that drives around this town square. Um, there's this whole thing there I, I wanted to ask you. There's this whole, they make a big deal about this town having this kind of small scale replica of itself in the middle. It's called teeny town. Um, and then like nothing happens with that in the movie. Is that like, is that a whole thing no. in the book?
2: Or is no. that, that's just a symbol. Uh, nothing that's happens just with a symbol. It it's okay. Just, uh, I, I mean, I think it's as simple as that you <laughs> okay. would think given that the Kubrick film, I mean, maybe it's a joke about the hedge maze model that is in, uh, Kubrick's movie, but, um, it doesn't have any plot significance.
1: Yeah. I mean, I could, I could make something up about that being about kind of, you know, replicating the past or, but it like, it just doesn't, it just seems like a very big, like obvious symbol. That's not quite of anything planted in the middle of the story. And then they don't do anything with it. Um, which is weird. Um, and in addition to running this locomotive, he is also, uh, I guess, I guess a nurse. I mean, I don't think they exactly specify, but he is uh, some sort of health aid. Like a, in, a hospice nurse. Yeah, yeah, he's like a hospice nurse. And um, the title comes from the fact that he is, um, he is primarily kind of using his shining now to identify when people are near death and to kind of guide them into the afterlife because he can talk to dead people, more or less. He can see kind of the other side coming for them and he is able to... Um, comfort them, even go kind of go into their mind and soothe them telepathically. And so then he is given the name Dr. Sleep. And that is where that comes from. Um, since we are also introduced a- around this time to one of the movie's other major characters, I think the last one we have to mention, um, which is Abra Stone, um, played by Kylie Curran. Um, she is a young girl in 2011 and a, a teenager in 2019 um, who also has... You know, like Dan Torrance, a very strong version of The Shining. And uh, we see her in this kind of early scene um, using her powers to make all her family's cutlery float up near the, ce- <laughs> the ceiling. Um, and by the time she's a-, a teenager, she has kind of gotten more creative with it, but doesn't s- really seem to realize um, exactly what she has. And more importantly, she does not know that having these abilities and particularly using them is going to make her a target for Rose, the Hat and the true not. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> um, so uh, we've, you know, we've been given the idea that, that Rose, the hat and her band of uh, psychic vampires or whatever we're calling them have been operating this whole time. Um, but by the time we catch up with them in 2019, um, they've kind of fallen on hard times. Uh, the, this steam that they live on, that they have been, um, you know, torturing and killing uh, particularly children in order to harvest this from them has grown less powerful, less pure. They don't really know why. One of them says it might have something to do with cell phones. Thankfully, they leave it at that because they really don't want to hear any more of that theory.
2: Um, chlorine, obviously.
1: <laughs> yes. But uh, we, are, we are you know made aware that they are still uh, kind of active and up to their bad ways um, because they – Track down a young man in a uh, in Iowa at a little league practice, um, who turns out to be. I have to admit, I didn't even notice this in the film, and had to see it in the credits. But he's played by Jacob Tremblay, um, which is
2: sort of a, a yeah, that was a surprise to me too.
1: Yes, but he they so they they you know offer him a lift um, after baseball practice as he's walking down these sort of corn rows, which might make you think of another Stephen King movie or Seven. Um, <laughs> but so they offer him a lift. He says no. And unbeknownst to him, one of the members of the, this True Knot is what they call a kind of a pusher. Um, she, has the, she has the ability to kind of, you know, just tell people what to do and get them to do it. So she says, you know, get in. He gets in. Um, after that, they take him off to this kind of abandoned chemical factory or something, pin him down to the ground. And then there was like a fairly, um, I guess not graphic, but fairly kind of prolonged sequence where it is very clear that they are, you know, torturing him with a knife and kind of, you know, cutting into him because Rose explains to him that that fear and uh, pain purify the steam and kind of basically get them a better high. You know, you do see kind of blood spattering up on his teenage boy face and stuff like that, which is um, pretty messed up, I guess. What did you you think of that sequence?
2: Yeah, it's it's hard to watch. It's less chilling there than it was in the book. In the book, there's a point where the kid actually begs Rose the Hat to kill him and she sort of like smiles at him as like, uh, soon, and then the next sentence is, "But it wasn't." <laughs> so it's it's bad any way you look at it. But um, uh, it is a, a pretty pretty lengthy child torture sequence. So if that's not your thing, uh, and I hope it's not. Um, be, be <laughs> please, warned, <laughs> please 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 do another podcast if
1: that's your thing. Yeah. Um, there are many to choose from. Um, yeah, no, it is, and I and I think if you read, I mean, I you know used to read Stephen King books a lot. I've not read one in in quite some time. You know, I read them. Uh, You know, as a child and a teenager, and I certainly remember he was someone who has no compunction about doing horrible shit to kids um, in his book, which uh, as a kid, uh, I think was very compelling to me uh, because I guess you feel like people are trying to do horrible shit to you all the time. So anyway, so poor Jacob Tremblay gets killed. That is all she wrote for Jacob Tremblay. But th- then, then Rose the Hat and, and co. kind of move on to they realize Aberstone is out there and that her steam is very powerful and pure and they can't quite uh, figure out where she is. But they, they know she's kind of on the East Coast somewhere. So they start heading that way. And meanwhile, um, Dan Torrance and Abra have been building up this kind of... Uh, sort of anonymous psychic communication. Um, Dan has this, has this kind of attic apartment in his New Hampshire town. There's some, you know, line of exposition about how the previous inhabitant was a math teacher or something. And so he painted a wall with blackboard paint. Um, and then, you know, one day he just starts realizing that he can communicate with this other person, n- not knowing who it is, but through kind of drawing messages on there and then messages from her will appear there. So he and Aubrey are kind of aware of each other's existence and, um, but not uh, not actually in, in contact.
2: I got to say, this is the one part in both the movie and, and book where that didn't entirely ring true to me because if you're Dan Torrance and as a kid, you went to the Overlook Hotel and met all of these ghastly creatures, uh, it seems to me that your response to like an unexplained psychic phenomenon would not necessarily be curiosity and excitement the way his seems to be in this. Right. Uh, Like, the first message he gets from her is uh, he wakes up one morning and on his blackboard, someone has written, hello, with a smiley face after it, which um, maybe that's a good sign, but I I don't know that I think Danny Torrance would assume that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I guess you maybe have to kind of read, um, you know, that he shines, you know, something about that, I guess, that he kind of assumed. But But it is... I mean, it a certainly did it. Yeah, I mean, well, well, yeah, and it is, when you, I mean, I watched the trailer for, for this movie, and I remember seeing that, and they made those shots seem quite creepy in the trailer, and, you know, a, a kind of blackboard, crudely drawn, smiley face in a horror movie can very much go either way. That is often not a sign exactly. of someone, someone actually trying to <laughs> smile and say hi
2: exactly. to you. Um, but, but this Dan I mean, Torrance makes friends, so... That, that. <laughs> Yeah, you know he's so in recovery. Seeing... He's doing good.
1: He's able to kind yeah, of exactly. reach out to other people. So there's a scene. There's a scene in here. Uh, the the True Knot kind of eventually get there, get a sense of where Abra is and Rose Rose the Hat um, decides to. She can astral project herself, as it turns out. I think this is one of the cooler sequences in the movie. She kind of flies through the air, vaguely supermany, but somehow different. I mean, she doesn't kind of have her arms extended. It's almost like she's kind of standing still and the world is moving around her, or something. And I that's just like a very Cool, like kind of visually distinctive sequence. So she flies through the air, um, you know, zooms in on Abra's house, um, walks in through her window upside down, um, and finds her room full of file cabinets. Which is an idea that the movie just kind of mumbles a couple words about. I assume is a bigger thing in the book.
2: It's the way that Abra is visualizing, or and also Rose the Hat, the inside of someone else's mind. So. It seems like the person who owns the mind has some say in how it's decorated or whatever, but it's essentially she's going through Rose the Hat's memories is the idea there. Right. Or actually, the filing cabinet scene, we in Abra's mind and Rose the Hat is trying to go through Abra's memories and it doesn't work
1: out. Yeah, so Rose the Hat is going through Abra's memories. She's going through these file cabinets. Um, she turns around and sees Abra. Um, sitting there, she's wearing a wig and her face is blurry. She's kind of disguised her appearance. And at that point, the this metal file cabinet um basically kind of starts trying to eat Rose the Hat's hand. Um, slam shut on it, she can't get herself free. Um, at that point, Abra manages to go into Rose the Hat's mind, which is sort of kind of like a library, but more like a kind of, you know. Harry Potter or like Library of Alexandria kind of deal like with you know like a big cathedral with lots of little filing cabinets. Now she's rifling through Rosa Hat's memories and learning about her. Um you know Rosa Hat is trying to pull her hand free um and it basically is kind of coming out of the drawer in in pieces. It reminded me a lot of uh Gerald's Game particularly just reading the novel and getting to the word degloving and experiencing like a full body shiver. <laughs> um so yeah so this is this is yeah her hand is kind of being pulled out of this thing like one layer of flesh at a time it's completely disgusting um maybe the goriest thing in the movie which maybe tells you a little bit about the movie too but um that's when she you know rose realizes that abra is sort of like a foe that she hasn't really encountered before i mean they've been after they've gone after a lot of psychics before but not she just has a level of powers that they have not gotten to previously. And I don't... And is that explained at all in the book or is that just... She just kind of is that way for some reason? It's
2: like X-Men have different powers. Some people have this.
1: Right. And Danny is like that in in the original too. I mean, the, um, Dick Halloran kind of explains to him like there are a lot of people who have like a little bit of The Shining and they kind of just, you know, they get a, a feeling when it's time to play the lottery or something like that or, or, you know, not to get on a certain plane. But Danny is special. Like he has this, you know, superlative version of him and that's what makes him so... You know, vulnerable to the ghosts at the Overlook, and and um, eventually
0: no purchase necessary. Void. were prohibited by law. C terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: Um, I wanted to ask about the, the True Knot as well. I don't know how they're portrayed in the novel. In this movie, there are several of them. Um, some of them you really have to look in the credits to even know. Um, there, there are several of them in the movie. They have names like uh, Grandpa Flick, uh, Barry the Chunk, uh, Silent Series, Short Eddie, Apron Annie. Um, several of those you would have to look in the credits to even know what the characters' names are. They're really just people who are in the background of a lot of scenes, um, but they do seem to have taken some trouble to kind of make them, uh, you know, slightly kind of, you know, multi-ethnic and different ages and stuff like that. And Rosa Hat herself looks a little bit like uh, she's got a little bit like a sort of 1978, like Stevie Nicks vibe going on. She's got like, you know, she's got her hat. She's got like kind of turquoise jewelry and beads in her hair and stuff like that. But it does feel to me like this is basically a group of people that Stephen King kind of wrote as like. Like, you know, traveling, like, kind of a Roma clan of like breath stealers, and then it was like, oh, wait, shit, that's racist now. Like, I have to do something else. So, what if I made them like one's Irish and one's Native American and then the others are white? Like, did they signify that way to you? Cause it, that just felt very
2: like. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, they're the, they're a modern version of that, uh, yeah, Roma, uh, myth plus the vampire myth. I mean, the thing that we haven't mentioned is that there's another thing about the true knot, which is that people who have some amount of psychic power who have a little shine or however you want to put it like vampires, they can turn you into a member of the true, Knot if you have that power. And we see them do that too. But woman at a, at some point early in the thing, it seems like a really painful process. But so in the book, the idea is just basically that for hundreds and hundreds of years, they've been going traveling around the world. Um, and every, you know, 50 years or so, maybe somebody joins their group. So,
1: right. We see this, this turning scene at the end with it, with a, a character who ends up being known as a snake bite, Andy, who's a, a uh, 15-year-old girl who has a thing about—she's um, she. She's the pusher, the one who can kind of get people to do what she says. And she has a thing about um, kind of luring pedophiles um, into her orbit and then um, basically using her powers to force them to harm themselves, um, kind of getting in what would be a compromising position with them and then getting them to, like, you know, mutilate their own faces um stuff like that. And, and Rose the Hat um, obviously thinks this would be a pretty powerful tool to have in her arsenal, so— um, she, you know, says to Snakebite, any kind of come with me, you know, do you want to like live almost forever, you know, live long, eat well, I think is the, the slogan. Um, <laughs> they open what's kind of this like magical, you know, thermos of, of death that they use to collect the steam. Um, you know, she snorts it then um, kind of says later, like, oh, God, I felt like I died. And Rose Hat says, well, you, you, you did. Um, so they they kill her without telling her they're going to tell her, but then she is reborn as one of these, you know, true not people. Um, and then does not seem to have any regrets about her career choices after that. So to return to the plot by now, you know, Rosa Hat and, and her group know that Abra exists. They know that she is this very powerful, very tasty uh, psychic whose who's steam they want to feast on. So they're not trying to track her down. Um, and at the same time, um, Abra and and Dan, who by now have kind of joined forces, um, they want to find them as well. And they decide that the way to do this is to um, – Abra needs to get a hold of an item that belonged to uh, the dead boy, Jacob Trumbly, the baseball player, because one of the members of the True Knot held it for a while. And so she can pick up emanations from that. So Dan Torrance and his AA sponsors, played by Cliff Curtis, then have to go out to Iowa and um, dig up this baseball glove – and they leave uh, Abra at home with their family. While well, they go out and do that, um, they bring the glove back to her, and she is able to kind of make this psychic like, connection and see where they at, see that their true knot are, are on the way at that point. And then they decide they're going to set a trap um, for them. And uh, that leads to this uh, kind of confrontation in the woods where most of the true knot is, is wiped out. Um, it turns out that despite being kind of quasi-immortal vampires, um, all you need to do is Like shoot them with a rifle and they will (laughs) dissolve. Um, So uh, Ewan McGregor and and Cliff Curtis dispense with most of them, um, but unfortunately, they have not. They realize that one of the group is is still missing, um, played by Zon McLaren, who you may know from um, Westworld. Um, And so he, meanwhile, has kidnapped Abra, killed her father, and is taking her back to Rose the Hat. Um, Do you want to talk about what happens next?
2: So uh, Crow Daddy um, is, which is the name of this a member of the True Knot who has kidnapped Abra, is keeping her drugged in a way that prevents her from using any of her powers um, and driving her back. And they actually sort of have a conversation. She's she's relatively amiable since he believes he's won, although he's, he's angry about everyone else being killed. Um, and what Dan Torrance manages to do is sort of travel into Abra's mind. Dan Torrance possesses Abra and then uses her to... Although she doesn't have any psychic powers, Crow Daddy is not particularly worried and is not wearing a, a seatbelt. So she she just grabs the steering wheel and drives him into the uh, uh, into a tree. At which point he goes through a windshield and dies. She does not.
1: Psychic vampire is also very bad at wearing their wearing
2: their seatbelts. Yes, they are. There, it's very strange because they seem to have. I mean, this is not a movie. If you're somebody who likes horror movies for like learning the rules of their universe, this is not the movie for you because the psychic powers that people have are whatever psychic power is narratively necessary at that, at that moment. Um, and, uh, the vampires too, it's not, they seem pretty mortal. Uh, <laughs> uh, they, they just don't age. Um, but they also don't seem particularly worried about being killed, which I would think you would be if you were torturing children and, um, uh, could be killed with a bullet. Anyway, he goes through the windshield and that's the end of that. Um, at which point, poor crow daddy.
1: We barely talked yeah, about you. Yeah, I know, enough.
2: I know. A short, <laughs> <laughs> a short, long life. Um, short, short on screen and long in years. But um, the death of Crow Daddy, who is also uh, the lover of um, Rosa Hatt, Hat, uh, in her. Whatever,
1: whatever that, that means point. in this context. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. exactly. Um, uh, she's enraged by his death and by the death of the rest of them. And at that point, uh, she is hellbent on tracking down Abra.
1: Um, Yeah, so she goes on this big uh, steam bender. She kind of takes all these canisters uh, that she's been uh, saving for the group, and because there is no group more, she just, like, snorts all of them, um, becomes, you know, super powerful um, and very dangerous, and Dan kind of realizes... Um, Or gets some sense that this is going on and realizes that uh, for reasons that don't entirely make sense, except that you know that we're going to get to the fireworks factory, um, decides that the only place that he can finally defeat Rose the Hat and make his final stand is, surprise, surprise, the Overlook Hotel.
2: So Dan and Abra go on a road trip to Colorado. And the first thing that you see that is recreated from Kubrick's movie after the opening credits there is sort of helicopter shots over the same uh, lakes that are used for the opening shots of The Shining. Um, And they arrive at the hotel, which is still standing, but has been condemned at some point after Jack Torrance's death.
1: Right. And as you Um, explain, like that's sort of an odd and slightly inexplicable move, given that, you know, the history of the Overlook is like far more horrible things have happened there than like a man attempting to kill his wife and child and freezing to death. Like people have actually been murdered in significant numbers. In this hotel, and it was fine, um, but I guess they hit a breaking point at some point and shut it down.
2: So the Overlook Hotel is now also a haunted house, which is a, a Mike Flanagan uh, thing after Hill House, um, and and it really does look like if you were going to design like the haunted house version of that hotel, uh, what what it would look like in the book. The reason that they go to the Overlook is a lot more prosaic and it's because Rose the Hat is there um, because they bought the ground where the thing once stood, uh, the true knot has, and put in a, a mobile home thing. Like the Roma, they're migratory, but they travel around in uh, lavish uh, RVs. So there's a reason besides shining nostalgia for them to go there.
1: What do you think of these moments? I mean, we've we've gotten, as you said, you know, really from the beginning of the movie, we've gotten like little peaks of the Overlook. Um, here and there, you know, sort of brief recreations of some of those, you know, incredibly famous, um, kind of indelible scenes from Stanley Kubrick's original, but this is where they really go whole hog on that. And, and for, you know, to a certain extent, like the last half hour of Dr. Sleep kind of effectively takes place inside The Shining. Um, they have, you know, meticulously recreated, I think there are a couple shops that they actually just um, swiped like the, the shot of the blood kind of gushing out of the elevator, but they've recreated a lot. They've recreated um, a lot of the locations and and hallways. They've you know recreated you know shot for shot some of the um, some of those moments, even just images that you immediately recognize, like when Danny you know when Dan goes up to a, a door on the overlook and you see um, you know where one of the panels has been busted out. I mean, you know exactly what room you're at. You know what happened there. How did you react to that? Was that kind of like interesting or weird or did that feel kind of creatively sterile to you? Like,
2: Well, I mean, I feel like the nostalgia you can get out of like, here's the shining again, uh, was pretty effectively mined in Ready Player One. And the first time that, that I realized that they'd recreated a the look at that was more of a shock than this. This one, I was impressed. I think the first thing that they recreate that's just straight from the thing is that they stop for gas at the same gas station. It's literally like a gas station in the movie where Dick Halloran. I think rents a snowmobile or something, um, that they had, had rebuilt. What I liked about it, I guess, is not that it was just, oh, they've rebuilt the sets, which y- you could do. I mean, that just takes money, but that it, it was sort of like we've rebuilt what this place would look like if it had been sitting exposed to Colorado winters. I mean, it's a
1: very like bizarre thing. And I had a lot of mixed feelings about it, a lot of which I think are more, um, complicated than the film itself. Like, I started to think about, there's a, a scene, we kind of mentioned the introduction of Snakebite Andy before, and there's that scene at the beginning where she is, she has coaxed this pedophile to, to meet with her so that she can kind of get her revenge on him, and she does it in a movie theater, and you, you know, as they're walking away, you see this the marquee underneath it says you know, now playing Casablanca, and it's like, oh, you know, what a wonderful homage to, like, a great, you know, old Hollywood movie, but then you also kind of, or at least I realize, and I'm sure you know this too, you know, Casablanca, like The Shining, like Dr. Sleep, is, you know, owned, lock, stock, and barrel by Warner Brothers. Um, and especially as all these Hollywood studios are kind of marshaling all their content and preparing to launch, you know, their Disney pluses and their Apple TVs and their HBO Maxes, um, where you'd be able to no doubt watch uh, The Shining and Casablanca come early next year. There is that aspect of it I find, you know, kind of like troubling. And it, the part of this movie that is just Warner Brothers exploiting its like pre existing IP um, is like that just is, like, that's kind of the real horrifying part of it for me. Of course. Um, When you get down to, like, recreating the sets of The Shining and, like, redoing the shots and actually, like, taking Henry Thomas and giving him that sort of, like, you know, that uh, kind of shaggy haircut and the the kind of, you know, loose-fitting cardigan that Jack Nicholson has in the, you know, at the end of The Shining, um... Then it becomes like this weird, it kind of started to remind me of like Gus Van Zandt's like shot for shot remake of Psycho. It becomes like this weird conceptual art project and not just this kind of this like sterile recreation of it. Like, um, you know, like like Rogue One or something like that. Um, I don't know how in touch with the weirdness of that this movie is um, and how much of it is just like kind of Kubrick fanboyism. Um, But it's... You know, it's kind of set my brain, and part of this is just that at this point I was, like, not involved in the plot at all, but it just set my brain firing in, like, these, you know, 12 different directions that I'm, like, thinking about that stuff, and and also, at the same time, like, not really caring what happens to Dan Torrance or, or ever So,
2: that um, <laughs> They definitely have some fun kind of playing around with the original text when they're back there. Well, I was just going to say, as a business decision that the Warner Brothers Studios has made, filming a sequel to The Shining is not something I necessarily approve of, but... Um, the attention to detail and the actual recreation of the rooms and things I thought was uh, very like legitimately impressive. And uh, you know, the thing that I wondered most about it was how much of it was built and how much of it was just, let's build a digital shining and, and green screen all of this.
1: Right. I mean, there's so. a good question. I mean, I know Mike Flanagan is, is like kind of a, a practical uh, effects guy when he can be um, there's a, an episode of the haunting of Hill house um, called two storms. It's kind of the midpoint of um of the series, and there it's uh, it's a lot of it is like set in a kind of a funeral home where they are burying their sister Nell who dies at the beginning of the, of the series, um, but then it is also kind of going back to Hill House and, and recounting um, the things that happened there, and it, it starts off with this, I think you know twenty six minute um, single take steady cam shot that not only follows them around the this funeral home, but actually like goes from the funeral home, like down a hallway and then transitions into the main hallway of Hill house itself uh, and goes back in time and, and reveals some of the things that are happening there. And I just assumed, um, because it's, you know, as it passes through this hallway out of the funeral home into Hill house itself, um, that there was some, you know, digital cut hiding there because it just clearly you wouldn't like build these two enormous sets next to each other, um, and, you know, putting all that expense and logistical difficulty just for one shot so you could, you know, kind of physically travel between them. Um, and I was wrong. Those two sets were actually built next to each other for the sole purpose of this one shot in the middle of this, you know, ten and a half wow. hours of, of TV. Um, so he is, you know, I think pretty obsessive about about that stuff. I, You know, I'm sure there's some, you know, digital involvement here. You know, like I said, I mean, I, there are definitely – um, you know, shots from the original Shining that are intermixed here, and there may be some kind of, you know, blending back and forth, but I think a lot of it is just um, construction and this, you know, the aging that you were talking about, this 40 years of Colorado winters give them some uh, leeway, you know, it doesn't have to be a perfect recreation, you just kind of need to, you know, get the dimensions right, and make the numbers on the door of room 237 look like the numbers on the door of room 237, uh, stuff like that. And I, I was thinking of Ready Player One, which... Um, also was you know very bizarre to have this whole and again like a a big change from the book um they added this whole shining sequence in in the movie because that's a movie that warner brothers owns and then they were making ready player one and it was like well we own the shining why don't you just use that um you know and i have i have a lot of deeply ambivalent feelings about that movie as well but i did (laughs) and i do end up feeling after seeing doctor sleep that it was at least a more sort of interesting you know thoughtful if not again, not totally successful, kind of reckoning with just what this era of kind of endless, you know, remakes and reboots and and IP mining and extensions and everything else, um, the kind of, you know, creative cul-de-sac that that is, is pushing us into. Um, and, it, and it felt like Dr. Sleep is kind of doing that, and but not necessarily thinking about it as much.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting, actually, because if you think about what King was doing when he wrote the novel of Dr. Sleep, it's not its not intellectual property that would be particularly valuable to Warner Brothers, except for them owning The Shining, because it's its in a different world. It's not a sequel to their movie. Um, so I'm sure Flanagan, well, actually, the film didn't do very well at the box office, right? But if Flanagan found a way to get them to monetize The Shining uh, that they did not have before, he would be a hero over there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, well I mean it's, you know, better a shining sequel than no shining sequel, probably as far as Warner Brothers is concerned. I mean, I I think it was projected to make twenty five million at the US box office and made fourteen or something like that. So that's a pretty I mean twenty five million was yeah. not that big to begin with, but that's a pretty dramatic difference. Um and it's you know, it's not gonna go up from there. So I think it's it's kind of a you know, box office dud at this point. Um, I mean horror movies are notoriously um, steep drop-offs. I mean, they off. They tend to have big opening weekends and then vanish. And this one did not even have a big opening weekend, so it's pretty much done. This is someone who's interested in Mike Flanagan, I think it was interesting to see. Like, it's interesting to me to see, ha- see him get this like big, huge toolbox and be able to do this. You know, to like, you know, build these huge sets that he can do these huge steady cam shots down. And the fact that he has to be rebuilding Stanley Kubrick sets in order to do that is. Um, partly just, it's just like, it's just kind of the world we live in, um, which is unfortunate, but it is also, this is, you know, it's 2019. This is, this is where we are.
2: I mean, if you have to meticulously recreate, uh, the work of an earlier filmmaker, and that's the only way you can make movies, you could do worse than to do Stanley Kubrick's, but, um, uh, but yeah, I agree with you. It's sort of depressing that that's, that's where the money goes. All
1: right. So anyway, so we we are, you know, building now to this final confrontation um, between Dan Torrance and and Rose the Hat. Um, Dan has, you know, decided that the Overlook is the place to stage this. Um, he's not really explained why. Um, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. There's some sort of connection between, you know, the true Knot and the ghosts in the Overlook, but they're definitely not the same. I mean the you know the true not are, are corporeal figures who you know physically kill people. They are not ghosts. Um but they are both kind of attuned to the same you know psychic bandwidth or something. But anyway, um so so you know Dan has lured Rose the Hat there. Um Abba is there as well. Um she is you know Ben waiting outside but um you know runs inside when Rose the Hat uh, shows up and so they built this confrontation. We end up back in the same giant hall um, with Jack Torrance's typewriter, you know, kind of still there on the table in the middle of it, the one where he typed, "All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy." As Rose the Hat is making her way towards the Overlook Hotel, um, we have you know what is probably the, the the most you know direct reckoning of this movie with the legacy of the original, um, which is you know Dan Torrance is kind of making his way around the hotel. Uh, metaphorically revisiting old ghosts. And then he literally revisits one because he um, steps into the ballroom, um, pulls up to the bar to have a drink. And behind the bar is uh, a figure who uh, we will eventually quickly come to realize is the ghost of his father, Jack Torrance. Um, Jack has been, uh, as we know, he was always been the caretaker. He's still the caretaker. He's still uh, attending bar there. Hasn't any guests in a while. Um, But he offers uh, Danny a drink. And this is where this, you know, the alcoholism theme that you were talking about before, Desim, um, comes back in.
2: Yeah. So they uh, he's at the bar in the Gold Lounge and they sort of recreate the alcoholism scene from uh, the movie and Book of the Shining in which this figure of Lloyd, the bartender, convinces Jack Torrance to have a drink, which is what sets him on his way. In this case, it's not Lloyd, although he says his name is Lloyd. It's clearly his father. Um, and he gives him a speech about alcohol being medicine. That's sort of, uh, you know, it's the, take the edge off speech. He tries to talk him into having a drink, uh, which he doesn't do. Um, and then does he just leave his dad at the bar and walk away? I don't remember how it ends. Um, he throws a, the bartender slides the, the glass off the Yeah, I think he just, he I think he just it. says
1: no. And yeah, and just leaves. Like, I think that's,
2: he yeah, was, he resists
1: so temptation he, 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 and
2: that's it. Yeah he looks at the drink he yeah he doesn't but he doesn't take it and at that point the ghost disappears and he's back in the empty gold room. And the last thing is where he really starts pulling from stuff from Stephen King's novel The Shining that that Kubrick didn't use. So it sort of jumps from recreations of scenes that happened to Jack Torrance in the novels are happening here to his son.
1: So now we're at the the final confrontation between Rose the Hat and and Dan um he has sent Abra off to kind of protect herself. There's a whole thing where he they kind of lay a trap for her inside Dan's mind involving um, you know, the 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 overlooks hedge maze. And then Rose the hat realizes that she's not in ever's mind. She's in Danny's mind. Um, she comes out and she just she starts pinning him down and um pulling the steam out of him. And that's when she um, you know, she goes into his mind and sees all these boxes um that he has been trapping the the ghosts of the Overlookin' for, you know, the last, you know, 30, 40 years. And as she's pulling the steam out of him, she sees these, you know, boxes in um, his head. They're, you know, elaborately decorated. She thinks they must be very special. Dan says they're not special. They're starving. Um, and he opens up all the boxes. And then all the Overlook ghosts come back, the ones that Dan's, Dan's been seeing around the hotel. So... You know the the twin girls and um, the original Lloyd the bartender and the old lady and all the other you know figures all the sort of you know Halloween costume party people from the original movie um, sort of stick their hands not only around like put their hands not only on Rose the Hat but sort of inside her they kind of stick their hands under the skin on her face somehow and just uh, like pull her apart and she vanishes in a puff of steam and that is the end of Rose the Hat.
2: But it is not the end of the Overlook Hotel. Yes. Dan Torrance is not doing great. And the hotel, these ghosts, um, having taken care of Rose the Hat, uh, possess him and send him after Abra, who is a valuable target for the hotel, just as she was for Rose the Hat. Um, And they recreate in the original book of The Shining, uh, there's no hedge maze. Jack chases Danny around through the hotel. Um, with an axe, which is, uh, sorry, with a rope mallet in the novel. In this case, it's an axe because it's an axe in the movies. But they recreate those sequences the way that the original book ended, this time with our hero Ewan McGregor chasing, you know, Eber, the main character, around like that. And they sort of recreate the end of the novel, which is that Jack Torrance is, in the novel is supposed to maintain the Overlook's boiler room. Um, when he's possessed, he forgets about it. Um, when... And that's what happens here. We see in a flashback that as they arrived at the Overlook, um, Dan went to the basement, turned on the still-functioning boiler, (laughs) and set it to blow up. Um, And then, having been attacked by Rose the Hat and possessed by the hotel, has forgotten all about that. But uh, as in the novel, The Shining, um, Dan Torrance, in this case, not Jack, runs down to the basement in an attempt to save the hotel. And save the boiler and does not succeed in that endeavor. The boiler explodes, killing Dan as it killed Jack in the original novel of the Shining.
1: Right. And uh, yeah, as I mentioned before, I mean, the the original Shining ends with the boiler and blowing up the the Overlook. Um, So this is kind of Stephen King's sequel to The Shining with the ending from Stephen King's book, The Shining, tacked onto the end of it. Um and I think I mean if you've read the book you know the second he goes into the boiler room like you know what's going to happen so it's almost like a weird little easter egg for for people who have actually read the book. Um there's also this scene where um you know it takes us into the boiler room Danny is is dying he's got this wound in his leg um he's got this ghost coming after him he's not going to make it out. Um he's you know he sends Aber out kind of recovers his, himself long enough to free himself from the literal ghost of his father. Um so he's just, you know, sitting there in, in the boiler room, basically waiting for this place to blow. And there is, uh, uh, we get kind of a, he's revisited um, by another ghost, and this time it is the ghost of his mother, Wendy, you know, who he is finally sort of brought together with, with his ability to see people close to death. He initially visualized that as like flies landing on their bodies. So when his mother started dying, her face was just covered with flies and he couldn't even look at her and he couldn't, couldn't see her face. Um, so he wasn't there when she died. Um, so then we get sh- the shot of, you know, his his mother, Wendy, put by Alex Esso, kind of coming back. Um, and we get to see her face this time. And it's kind of this reconciliation between um, the, the two of them, kind of this moment of, of peace um, that Danny has finally found by going back and, and confronting this whole thing before the hotel uh, blows up and he dies. I mean, this reminded me also like a little bit of the ending of The Haunting of Hill House, which kind of had a sort of similar kind of ghost reconciliation thing to it that played on a certain emotional yep. level, but also made no sense with like the, the nine hours of stuff that it's just like, this doesn't like this kind of evil ghost that has been like orchestrating all this stuff just turns out to be like, kind of like maybe good. Um And yeah. this doesn't really, yeah, like there's no, like, what's the moral <laughs> here? Like if you survive a childhood trauma and it um bothers you your whole life, you should just um, like blow up a building with yourself in it and you'll be at peace. Like, I don't really, <laughs> I don't know what my takeaway is here, I guess.
2: Anyone who knows the answer to that can't tell us, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's two movies. It's it's this vampire story and then it's tour the haunted overlook hotel for a half an hour. Um, and, and, and I think, I mean, I, it's sort of sweet. There is in the original Shining also, there's a moment where Jack Torrance briefly overcomes his possession and tells Danny to run and, you know, whatever, like, like comes back to himself. It's not like thematically wrong for this one to end with reconciliation the way it was, I think, thematically wrong for Hill House to do that. But it's strange. It's a strange thing. Like that moment in the in the basement of the boiler room is not does not seem like where you would want to put a big moment of reconciliation. But that's the end of the movie. So that's where it goes.
1: Yeah, that's kind of that's the end of of Dan Torrance, pretty much. And we do get a little tag. After that, um, you know, as I, we mentioned, I think, um, you know, Abra's uh, father was, was killed by, by Crow Daddy. Um, but so we get a little tag, you know, it's, you know, it's, I think six months later or something like that. And we see Abra at home with her mom and she basically does kind of the bubble bee pendant scene from The Sixth Sense um, where she basically you know tells her mom, like, hey, uh, you know, I can talk to dad and dad's fine and everything's OK. <laughs> he doesn't matter. It doesn't. He's not upset that like a quasi immortal demon being stabbed him in the chest with a kitchen knife. Um, everything's cool. Um, you know, dead people are fine with it. That. Um, yeah. that's, <laughs> um, and then we see in the final callback as we see once again, the rotting ghost woman, um, who Dan, I guess let out to, to, Kill Rose the Hat and has not been successfully, somehow, even that the Overlook blew up, is still around and now is haunting Abra and the last thing we see is her uh, preparing to put the old lady back in a box and scene.
2: I think it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting movie if you think about it as just sort of like how on earth would you reconcile these stories uh, that don't end in the same place and aren't really about the same thing. But it's, if it's, you're looking for a movie that is like terrifying this isn't it yes.
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> or quote unquote makes sense um yes yeah. also
2: and, true also true
1: all right um well thank you all for listening um thank you matthew Jessen, for joining me today thank you so much for having me i had a great time yeah please subscribe to the slate spoiler special podcast feed and if you like the show please rate and review it in the apple podcast store or wherever you get your podcasts if you have suggestions for movies or tv shows we should spoil or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share please send it to spoilers at slate.com Our audio engineer is Merritt Jacob. Our producer is Rosemary Belson. For Matthew Desim, I'm Sam Adams. Thanks for listening.
0: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?